Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jason Solomons. An absolute pleasure to be here to talk about this, this film, this wonderful film. We are delighted to be joined uh, by the writer and director of this film. He's no stranger to BAFTA, of course. He's won a BAFTA for Brokeback Mountain, which he produced. Uh, he's also been nominated for screenplays, which he's written with Ang Lee before, from The Ice Storm uh, through to Lust Caution. Uh, he is James Seamus. <laughs> I'm delighted to be able to talk to James about it, so I'll hog him for a little bit, and then uh, it is a Q&A, so we'll throw the, uh, the floor open to you guys. Uh, J James, I mean, Seamus, I think many years ago, I always wondered, I thought, is he Irish? Is he, what's, what? I've now seen this film, which is your debut as a filmmaker, yeah. as a director. I yeah. think we can probably say you're not Irish. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Aang directed Sense and Sensibility, and he, he's not you guys. Um, so, uh, but yes, I'm not. It's uh, short for Shamasinski. Uh, and in fact, the uh, dedication at the end of the film to um, Max and Esther Gershowitz, those are my grandparents. And my, it, it turned out one of the weirdest things uh, I didn't realize until uh, midstream and working on the script, and I was talking to my father, who's become a, a big genealogy buff, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that my great-grandfather uh, was a kosher butcher. Uh, which was weird, uh, by, but my grandfather, uh, Max, and I named the parents Max and Esther in the film because they're unnamed in the novel after them, uh, was, a, uh, was a grocer. He was a grocer in Cleveland. Um, and, uh, and my parents were the first of their generation, uh, the first generation of their families to ever go to college. Mm -hmm. And you, you continued that as well. Now you're, and now you teach at college. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, uh, that's my actual day job. Is, uh, I'm a professor at Columbia. At uh, Columbia. So you won't put off academia, uh, despite your kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, I suppose it's a kind of vexed relationship that, uh, that uh, Messerman has here. Uh, not vexed at all. I completely identify with Tracy Letts' character. It's just uh, the dean of men. That's my, that's my day job. Yeah. Uh, Striking terror into the hearts of so, undergraduates. I mean, as I mentioned, you're, you're a BAFTA winner. You, produce, you were head of Focus Features for, for many years. Uh, you were on set with Ang Lee countless times, I, I, I guess, from, and, and uh, written screenplays with him and, and published them. Uh, why suddenly now do you suddenly think, well, do you know what, I think I can do this and I'll take up the camera? Oh, um... Yeah, look, I had uh, 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 that great late midlife uh, blessing of getting fired from my studio gig, uh, and I was unemployed. Uh, and I had originally acquired the um, rights to the, the novel uh, and thought to write the script for Aang. Uh, and then Aang uh, decided to expand his ambitions in terms of kind of redefining cinema and the technology, uh, both with Life of Pi and 3D and, and now with Billy Lynn and, and what, what we call... Uh, uh, Ang Vision, you know, the uh, 120 frames per second, 4K resolution, native 3D, expanded dynamic range. Uh, it's, it's quite an adventure mm -hmm. technologically. Uh, it's also an adventure budgetarily. And so that is something that obviously a film like this can't sustain. Um, and so I was left both unemployed and with a script that I'd written. And I thought, you know, it's a real privilege uh, at my age to be able to try something new. Who, who was it that said, well, was it you, a voice inside your head that said, well, why didn't you direct it? Was it uh, an executive came to you? Was it Ang that said, why don't you direct it? Oh, no, no, Ang would never do that because that would take away time from my producing forum, which he's clearly just, he was, he was, he, he was of many minds about me directing, but eventually very supportive. Um, uh, no, it was a little voice in my head that then got externalized by my wife, Nancy, who's here tonight, 
It was like, why don't you do it? Um, and I was like, yeah, because otherwise it, it, I had to wait for somebody to bring it up because I was too shy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What was it like the first, I mean, obviously you've been on sets countless times and, and given notes, no doubt, to directors countless times. Yeah. What was it suddenly like to be, to be in front of the camera, the first shot, the first day on set, kind of going, ah, do, do, did you know what you were doing? Of course not, <laughs> uh, you know, and people, because it's, it's a good question, because look, I've been, you know, three decades in the business, and all of us, you know, but, um, uh, and I uh, certainly had, had, I'm not shy about sharing my opinions, you know, when you run a studio, uh, in particular, you're producing, um, uh, but uh, as, uh, as I've said to a couple of friends, because they said, well, you must have known, you know, you have so much experience, I've said, you know, and the analogy I draw is, that, you know, I, I've been to the dentist many times, but, Next time I go in, it's not like I'm going to clean my own teeth. You know, it's like that's not, there, there's still something you don't know. And for me, uh, there were two things in particular that were slightly on the terrifying tip. Uh, one was, of course, working with actors. Uh, and I was working with some extremely intimidating people uh, on this. Um, you know, uh, uh, folks who aren't household names, but Linda Eman, who plays the mom, for example, has been nominated twice for Tonys uh, and was you know, Mike Nichols' favorite actor. Uh, 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 you know, uh, Danny Brewstein, whose dad has been nominated twice for Tonys. Uh, uh, Tracy Letts, five Tony nominations. A win you know, no, Danny's six Tony nominations, but he always loses. Um, uh, that's right. Uh, Tracy's won, and he's also won. I mean, these people are like, yeah. I mean, they're legit. I don't, you know, I've never. Um, and so, uh, and even Logan Lerman, you have to th remember, the guy's been acting since he was eight years old. He's been on set more than I have. He has more experience than I do, actually. Which is, and he is that, he's that professional. He's that, he is intimidating. Mm. So that was one. Um, and then the other one was, and that, it was funny because I hadn't really thought about it until we were starting kind of soft prep, uh, but nobody ever asked me where to put the camera before. And it turns out, because I hadn't thought about it, that you can actually just kind of put it anywhere, <laughs> uh, which means that screen really is a tabula rasa. It's, it's an empty, vast, white <coughs> void. Uh, waiting to uh, suck all of your, uh, shall we say, uh, 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 fake sense mm -hmm. of competence as a first-time director. So that was uh, we. Uh, so I, I immediately pressed panic button there. Um, but what I did, I, we had. I was a blast. What, what I do is I got my kind of brain trust because I teach at Columbia. I have these very smart students and and, uh, and assistants. And I. So what I did was I. I um, I described every scene in the movie to them in the most boring way possible. Like the slug line, I just do a slug line. I say, in this scene, uh, two people in a car drive up in front of a building and one person gets out of the car. Like, without, every scene was like that. Even you know, in this scene, two people sit in an office and they talk. Okay. And then I said, what we'll do is we will rip scenes from five other films or TV shows, whatever, mm -hmm. that, are, that fit exactly that description. And then I will make dinner, I'll make pasta, and I'll open a good bottle of wine. And for about five or six nights, we'll watch these scenes per shot in, in scene order, and we will reverse engineer every aspect of them. The blocking, focal length, camera movements, uh, all of it. Just where, you know, foreground, background, mm -hmm. action, everything. Name a couple of the films that you took. Well, we did, and I was very, I, I, what I said, I said, I don't want to be doctrinaire. So they can't, they shouldn't, they don't need to be classes of world cinema. American Independence, your favorite movies, Euro art films, uh, after school Disney specials. It doesn't matter as long as the scene, and the, here's the thing, it was amazing. I, I really recommend it if you can pull this off, if you're prepping, because uh, it, it demystified 
the whole thing. It turns out a few things you learn. You learn uh, um, there's some, there some things that, just are, uh, that pop out. For example, uh, cars pulling up in front of buildings. There's like a law in California, I think it's a union law, that you have to have a crane. As the car pulls towards camera, the crane comes down. <laughs> It's like, it was like, how many, like, I can't afford a crane. How am I going to shoot this yeah. thing? And yeah. there's always a parking space right yes, in front of the absolutely. building that you need to be in. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, but what you, do, what you do learn, and I'll tell you, and this is a question of which films, um, you find out that there are certain movies that you remember and love, at least I do, like that would pop up a fair amount in our list, which is by, you know, whatever, uh, the, as these amazing, kinetic, unbelievable, you know, the movement, the camera work, I'm thinking like Goodfellas. Goodfellas showed up in like probably 10 out of 100 scenes. And, uh, but they were, you know, we mixed in with all the other ones. Um, now here's the, the secret though. This is the thing that when you, it turns out that 85% of Goodfellas is TV coverage. It's just like, you know, master, okay, over the shoulder. Yeah, come in the close up, a little close up. Okay, lunch, that's it. 20% is like, okay, we have a steady cam and like film a schoolmaker. We're like, ah, let's go. You know? right. But the rest of it is like, they're just like shooting the movie. And I thought that's really interesting. I was like, wow, that, that was news. In so, a well, sense. That, 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 calmed, that kind of calmed the nerves in a way. Yeah, yeah, because you see these patterns emerge and then you can change them. You, you don't have to go by the pattern. Mm. And, and the other thing I learned was occasionally we would, you know, because after a couple hours, you're really in this hard work because we would try to think is that a 35 on the camera? Is that a 50? You know, what's the thing? And then occasionally you come across a, a, a scene that was shot incredibly, like, oh my God, there's a diopter lens, and you know, the guy in the background is looking forward, and then they cross, and suddenly you're, the camera moves left, and we're, I'm just writing it all down. This is amazing. What a scene. We're all like, yeah, what a scene. This is like incredible. And then I stop and go, but wait a second. That movie sucked. It was horrible. I hated everything about that film. The characters, the script. I could give a shit. And that was also really important, mm -hmm. that you, the fetishization of the whole thing disappeared, and I thought, what's important? Mm -hmm. what, it's the, to me, it was the people and all that stuff. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's like being at his class in Colombia now. You don't have to pay. <laughs> um, it's fascinating, but you also, apart from that, but you also had the grammar and the existing text and rhythm of a Philip Roth novel yeah. that you were adapting that you presumably had to do some justice to uh, as well in the grammar of your cinema. Yeah, well, grammar, as you know, is pretty much uh, the appropriate word here, because it's a lot of like, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and that was, that was weird. Like in the, in the script process, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I always say I have a very, very specific approach to adapting um, novels for screenplays. Uh, which I've done a lot of. Did you uh, do Sense and Sensibility with that? No, no, that was we. That was Emma, Thompson, yeah. Emma, and we. But we spent lovely weeks up in uh, Hampstead hanging out, and that was a lot of fun. So, but that's her script. She was really. Uh, that's. Um, um, but, uh, but uh, even so, the the process, and it's a trademark process. So please, you know, uh, remember, is basically I take the book and I just transcribe all the dialogue, and then I put in the minimal amount of action and slug lines, and then I type the end. And there's the script. Um, and then I spent like two years more going, holy shit, this will never be a movie, right? And then you, oh boy. So that's, that's my process. And, um, but what happened was because it was that I would revise and revise, and every time I would do a revision, I would say, you know, there's this little scene about you know, halfway into the movie. You probably didn't notice it. Uh, slightly long page count. 
And I'd always say, well, I'm a very professional screenwriter, so I'll just, you know, on the next draft, I'll, you know, do what I have to do. I gotta trim it down, and, you know, because nobody's ever gonna finance a movie with a 18 minute mm -hmm. scene with two people talking about religion in the middle of the movie. Like, forget it, like, it's not gonna happen. Um, and then it would survive, it just kept surviving. And then it was after a few drafts, I realized, like, oh, I get it. Like, that's it. Like, we, the movie will sink or not, depending on whether we can sustain. But it, it is yeah. so odd, James, because. I mean, it's just, is it 18 minutes? You're, you're well, we shot, it, we shot it in single takes, and the actors, Tracy and, and Logan, were off book, and there were 18-minute takes. We ended up editing it down to mm -hmm. about 16. But, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I found that particularly... It's so unusual to see it. I mean, the last time mm -hmm. I remember a scene remotely like that is, is um, Steve McQueen in Hunger, yeah. where they, they had a sort of static shot for, I think, 27 minutes of yeah. talking. But because we're so un, unused to seeing that, particularly in kind of American cinema, um, I, it was compelling and gripping, and you, you, you hung on every word. And I found it, you know, I found it drip with irony. And you got the sense of Philip Roth's writing it, through through that. Yeah. And so I mean, and you're the director, so presumably you got the you got the final say there. Yeah, but it was really it's interesting because you know, again, as uh, those of you who have gone through this process of adaptation know that um, there are always it depends on the, the novelist, but in terms of uh, directly reported dialogue, you have scenes, but then. There's another scene which they say, oh, and then in this scene in the novel, like, and then she went over there and did that, and that's also a dialogue scene, but the author was just rude enough not to write it for you, and then you have to do that. And weirdly, I find it much easier to write scenes whole cloth than to take a scene that's been written, for example, by someone who's genius of Philip Roth, and then have to edit it and then write the little like, extra sentence in between because I had to cut out two pages, but I needed a thing. And I sweat every, so like of the Dean scene, right, that's probably at least 80% Philip Roth, maybe more. But it's those interstitial things that were really painful for me to write. I, 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 it was a terrible process. As a, as a writer? Yeah. You, now you've directed your own words for the first time. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you think, were there times where you were directing, you were thinking, were you cursing the screenwriter, uh, or as a screenwriter on set, were you cursing the director for, for mucking, do you know what I mean, the dialogue between the two, which is yeah. with yourself, that, how, how, how did that play out? Yeah, um, uh, I would say, you know, I've gotten so much practice, because, you know, again, it's, it's an odd formation, having, you know, 12 movies with Aang, as a, uh, and I think 10 of them I, was, I wrote on as well as produced, so... I was that guy on set who would say, Aang, you know, you're losing light, and I love your shot list dearly, but really we don't need this last page of the scene. You can just cut to, and he was always, I mean, he put his little puppy face on, and, but those are your precious words. And I'm like, okay, whatever, it's a movie. Just like, get to work. Um, so I was always pretty ruthless about that, mm. actually. And um, I think scripts, no matter, you know, look, they're instrumental documents. They're basically, I, you know, I sometimes describe screenplays as, you know, 120 pages of begging for money and attention. That's what they are. <laughs> it's not, they're not, you know, and there's no, uh, look, I, you know, you don't go to, like, you go to a Baptist screening, and let's say you just, you don't, you don't walk out of a screening uh, and turn to your friend and say, you know, that was literally the biggest piece of shit I have ever been subjected to in the screening room. But you know what? The script was great. <laughs> I can't believe they screwed up that script. No one ever says that, right? In the best, like, at the Oscars, the BAFTAs, it's not like in the best screenplay category, there's, like, you know, the big, and then, like, there's two of the nominees are, like, terrible movies but had amazing scripts. But whereas when you go to your kid's school and they put on, you know, Twelfth Night, you don't walk out at 12th night and go, 
that was sucked. I know that Shakespeare tales. You know. So we don't the the ideology of script is really the word doesn't stick by itself, right? You have to. The only successful script is a script that succeeds in getting talented people to do things. Right. right? Which um, and and congratulations here because I think Logan Lerman is terrific mm. here. Um, I've seen him before, but never never so much of him yeah. as this. And Sarah Gaydon as well, who we know from David Cronenberg movies yeah. and uh, the British movie. A Bell. Exactly, yeah. Bell with, uh, for Amazante. Yeah. Um, a, a terrific role for her as well. These two very different kind of sensibilities clashing at the, at the heart of your movie. And I wanted to sort of take you back to writing those and, and directing them. Um, you know, how, how much of you in, as a youthful James Seamus is in there? I know it's uh, Philip Roth, but you know, you, 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 in the end, you're, you're, you're the ghost in this movie. You're everywhere. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I look, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, and this is what you learn when you uh, take on directing, of course you're going to find a protagonist who you completely identify with who happens to be like 20 times better looking than you are. It's like that's a classic director thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that kid. You know, I know, I know, I know Marcus pretty well. Uh, I do. And, 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 and to me, the great challenge uh, and what I loved about the challenge was having a protagonist in a movie that I hope, I mean, the goal is, and you guys decided, is you I identify with, you empathize with, but structurally speaking, you know, he's a putz. I mean, he's sitting across the table from this young woman and falling in love, but he has no idea of the trauma she's gone through. He has no idea of the oppression and the horrors that she's, that are her, her life, right? And so he doesn't get it at all. And yet somehow we have to get through the movie forgiving him, I think, somehow, for missing the, like what's right there in front. So that's, that, to me, was a great um, a challenge. And obviously having Logan uh, personify him uh, helped a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a, a fantastic performance. The the other thing uh, about the film is your that intrigues me is your relationship to the to the fifties because I mean it is it is a fifties Americana film, but mm. sometimes when you think of fifties America, you think of James Dean and you think of Marlon Brando. This is a very different America for it for that. Yeah, in a sense, nineteen fifty one really is the forties, right? And it's the beginning of the House on American Activities Committee. Nineteen fifty one, in fact, the summer of fifty one. The first subpoenas are going out to Hollywood screenwriters, and the Hollywood Ten are uh, getting lined up and getting ready to go into exile and jail. Um, uh, the rise of McCarthyism. There's this in, insane xenophobia. There's these imperial wars going on in places overseas, and nobody's paying. It's you know the forgotten war, the Korean War, uh, and of course there's this massive uh, undercurrent of a social movement that takes the relative freedom of American women during World War II when they had to enter the workforce and take these, you know, the rose of the river to jobs and find their way outside of the home and suddenly they're told, no, get back in there. By the way, we're gonna hypersexualize you and like put the thumb down. So this kind of, all, all of that happening at once and, and clearly Roth is aware when he's looking back at that era and writing this at, just around the corner from the financial crisis in 2008, very presciently, I think, you know, given the, <clears throat> electoral politics going on both here and in the States, it's not as if this is a foreign, you know, this is foreign territory anymore, even though we would like to think that the 1950s were so far past yeah. that kind of, oh, you know, we're so much more progressive, and yet, look, I mean, it's the same stuff, right? Mm. And then, you know, the, I mean, it's, it is extraordinary that uh, uh, that a woman has, you know, is tainted, I suppose, for her, for a display of sexual mores, you yeah, know? and and that and it goes on it goes on today. Yeah, 
I mean, just, just check Donald's Twitter account. But it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's uncanny, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Do you think that young people, because it is, a, it is a, young, a youthful movie, it's a campus movie, and I love an American campus <laughs> film, I really do. But do you think that the, the young people then are, are facing the, uh, the same sort of decisions as, as now? Well, I think it's harder. I think young people even today, I mean, it's always been hard. Um, but, you know, this is a time, 51 is a time, like, you know, when they're going to the, uh, they're off to the cemetery for the end of their first date, um, and they, you know, they're listening to the radio, and of course we wrote that song for the movie, but um, it's in an idiom that would have been pop music at that time. In fact, oh, that's, September, that, that's an original song, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, we got the great Jane Monheit to sing it, who's an amazing jazz singer. Um, but uh, that's the same month, September of 1951, that was Tony Bennett's first hit, number one hit, radio hit. And, um, but we couldn't afford to license it, so we, you know, So that's why you wrote your own We wrote our own, yeah, we did our own. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but you, that pop, so pop culture was not teenage culture, right? Mm. It was grown-up culture, and teens were just, you know, kind of miniature grown-ups, right? So you're just two or three years from the beginning of this bifurcation and segmentation. And, of course, now teens have it, I think, even worse because pop culture is teen culture, except they have to watch their parents dressing like them on friending them on Facebook and just it's too embarrassing but it's true it's like you've got this weird blend again now yeah that's yeah. very true yeah. the um so you wrote the so you wrote the song and you also you wrote the lyrics though yeah yeah this time because yeah. you've got a history of you've been nominated uh, for okay you're bringing up a very sore subject here. yeah <laughs> he, was, he was nominated for best original song yeah for uh okay uh and then well I uh Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon so we were finishing up and then the studio um said we need an end credit song and we thought well we don't really want one for the US or European version but for the Asian version it would be really good to have because you have these canto pop songs. So I wrote the uh, cheesiest, co-wrote with Jorge Calandrelli, uh, the cheesiest canto pop thing but we got Coco Lee who was like the biggest recording artist in the world at that point uh, to sing it. Uh, it's called A Love Before Time and I know it's going to be your favorite song when you go onto YouTube tonight <laughs> and look it up. And, um, and it was pretty embarrassing, and, uh, and they loved it so much, the studio loved it so much, they decided to slap on an English language version on the, you know, the rest of the prints, mm -hmm. which already, and Ang and I were like, oh, God, it's a little, but, you know, who listens to the end credit song and whatever. And back then, end credit songs were eligible for Academy nominations, but I told the guys, the studio, I said, please just, like, forget this ever happened, and they're like, we're going to get you that nomination. You know, if anybody here knows Michael Barker from Sunny Classics, that's how he talks. I'm going to get it for you. And I was like, stop, no, really. And, um, and then we got nominated. Seriously, I was, I was just like ruined the whole day. Like we got like 14 <laughs> nominations or something. And he calls me, he goes, ah, I got you. I was like, you got to be, no, 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 wrong. And so, um, but it is the year of, that we were up against like Tom Petty, Bjork, and this guy, Bob Dylan, and uh, some of this. So, um, so I go, I said, this is totally true. I said to Annie, I said, look, I can't even vote for myself. I'm voting for Bob Dylan. It wasn't even Bob Dylan's best song, but you know, it's whatever. And uh, I just can't, I just, it's not gonna happen. So I'm telling exactly the story to a bunch of people the day of the Academy Awards with Aang there. And, I, and it has the punchline, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's whatever, it's a shtick, but it, I'm giving you the shtick. Like the punchline is like, yeah, I didn't even vote for myself, I voted for Bob Dylan. And Aang goes, oh yeah, I did too. <laughs> I was like, really? You know, like, really, no, I vote, no, you vote for me. And it's like, I vote for your script. <laughs> um, Bob Dylan won. Yeah, Bob Dylan won, yeah. By two votes. Big surprise, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's doing all right now. He's doing all right. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so I, I just, must just ask because of the, what I loved about uh, Indignation is the pacing, which we've talked about, which is unusual, but the, the, I thought the photography was you know, mm. fantastic and the, yeah. the music, the, the score as well. So if you could just tell us a little bit about the, the, those crafts as well before we open up to the, sure, yeah. the audience. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, no, the, that was probably my hardest sell as a director and producer to our financiers was uh, Jay Wadley, who uh, this is his first score. Uh, for a feature. He did a small feature, just a quick synth score, but this is really the first time he's done it. And I met him because I did a couple of documentaries a couple summers ago, just short, like little eight-minute shorts about money and uh, banks and just, you know, corruption and evil. And, um, uh, and I found, you know, we had no money, so it was just like, oh, there's this guy who just graduated from Yale uh, School of Music and uh, he's doing jingles, you know. And I got to meet him and we started working on it together and I thought, wow, this guy's smart, like really, and we just had so much fun. So the score was really one of the great joys. I probably spent more time in studio, his studio, than I did on set. We actually wrote a, an entire tone poem for the movie before we started pre-production, mm -hmm. which didn't, none of it made it into the film. It was beautiful, but it just ended up, we ended up finding a whole other we, we, It's very easy to kind of do a, a 50s Americana type score, but it, yeah. it doesn't, it kind of, but it's there, you know, those, yeah. those themes are there. Yeah, uh, but I thought it no, was, but we pulled out a bunch of stuff, and there's themes that really, um, it was really fun working with him, because I love, music is my favorite thing to work on in movies as a producer. It's always been my, the most fun thing. Yeah, so having that was a, a joy. And uh, the, your, your, your DOP as well, because you know, as a first time director, the advice always is get a good DOP. Definitely, and not only is Chris Blavau like a genius, but he's the nicest guy on earth. And also he's tattooed like a sailor from France in the 1930s. <laughs> So it's hilarious. Like every time, like on set, he's like, "What is that tattoo? Like what?" Um, but uh, uh, had you we, worked with him before? No, I never worked with him before. I, I well, he I, he was a second to Harris Savides, um, the great um, uh, DP who used to work with Fincher and stuff. He called, uh, uh, who's since passed. Not Harris Savides. Harris. Um, yeah, Savides. Yeah. Savides. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Savides, sorry. I'm just, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, but we spent months before prep. Every week we had a Skype call. Because uh, just nerding out on um, what I wanted, my, my challenge to him was if it was 1951 and your photo album at home and you, ha you had color photography, so you were doing, it was Kodachrome, but you know, Kodak kept changing the bath over the 50s and 60s, so Kodachrome in the 60s was a very different palette actually from the early 50s. And you can't get it, you can't reconstitute it from 16 millimeter home movies because they dissolved over time. There's nothing, the color, it's all disappeared. So we went back and we finally found in the early color uh, photography work of a Amer great African-American photographer named Gordon Parks. Oh yeah. Um, it turns out he, he's known, very well known for his reportage in black and white for Life Magazine and the Civil Rights Movement. But it turns out he's actually a, one of the great genius color photographers. And we locked in on that. And then working with a color scientist, we spent about you know, almost a month and a half creating a lookup table, a LUT, for the Alexa, you know, shooting digitally. Um, and that's basically 4,032 spots on the spectrum from white to black that each have their own red, green, blue mix, right, the percentages. And we, found a, we, we created a LUT that really recreated that particular color scheme that, so that the idea is that if you're remembering in the media of a home medium, you know, your own home memories if, in 1951, mm -hmm. that's the colors that we used. That they were the right ones. Yeah. He went on to direct Gordon Parks, uh, uh, of course, as well, didn't he, as a, as a filmmaker? I think, I think so, yeah. 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 What's, 
Murder Tree. There you go. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's a beautiful film. Um, it is time, indeed, to see the audience perk up at exactly the right moment uh, for questions for uh, James. And there's a mic. There's yeah. a, uh, okay. Um, I'm old enough to have worked with Sir John Wolfe, Romulus Films, not on African Queen, but that was one of the, his great ones. And in those days, there was an executive producer, producer and director, and that was it. I've noticed in recent years coming here and tonight, there seems to be a huge list of executive producers, producers. And I wondered if any of those people whose names we see listed interfered with what you did or did you just have carte blanche? Are they mm. just there to raise money and get the credit for pulling all the money together? Right. Yeah, it's, uh, look, the producer credit proliferation is a huge deal and you know, the Producers Guild of America were really working to you know, get the integrity back to the producer credit, uh, which I think is really important. Um, uh, but no, we, uh, you know, look, even those very low budget movies, and, and we only had 24 days to shoot. We had no trailers, you know, Logan, everybody had to just hang out on set. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, down and dirty, but uh, we had enough. But even just to get enough these days, you may have noticed there's folks from Germany, there's folks from China, there's folks from Brazil. This, the, our bank was from Canada. Our mezzanine financing was from Canada. It, there was equity from the United States. And those trail with them credits. That's basically it, you know, um, uh, for sure. And no, I did, I, I wouldn't say carte blanche because I, as a producer too, I really want to work with people whose opinions I respect. So there was a lot of back and forth and I had to change a lot of the script to uh, get into the budget that we were able to raise. Um, but that was fine, that was great. Otherwise, no, I was free, you know. Um, I was really interested in uh, the period because as a Columbia uh, person, you'll know that that, that was uh, Jack Kerouac's alma mater and, and the whole change that was wrought about in the late 50s by On the Road and, and that transmogrifying into the, the 60s and uh, all the rest of it so that from wearing suits and ties, students are... Uh, looking more like James Dean and wearing T-shirts and jeans and whatnot. And so that was really realistic to, to, to sort of see that. So thank you very much. Sorry, I thought I had to say that. It yeah. was, I did go to college in the States, and I didn't recognize in a sense. But I can, I can imagine that years before, it was, it was a bit... It was a strange sort of college environment, wasn't it, compared to what we see now. Anyway, sorry, I have a question. Um, obviously, this is not a long novel from, from what you're saying. I haven't read it. Um, but what you, you still had to shorten it, not as much as you might have had to do with a full-length novel, but uh, how did you make those decisions of the changes in the story? Obviously, you have to compress the narrative and so on. But was there, were there any times you actually turned around the narrative or, or summed up a series of scenes in one scene or had to be a little creative? Compressed characters. Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, some of the characters are composite for sure. There was an extra uh, beat in a different dorm room before he goes, oh, there was a, you know, a, a big exterior night scenes. There was a car crash, actually. The, the the roommate played by Phil Ettinger, the guy who's doing his homework while he's going, she blew me, and he's like, mm, okay, whatever. Uh, he ends up dying in a car crash. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, so the funnel was really, let's get as close as we can to these two young people and make it a movie that really we stick with them. Uh, so the expansiveness of the the kind of just dilatory, Rothian sociological thing uh, uh, had to go, and that was fine because I couldn't afford 
night shooting with hundreds of extras, frankly, uh, was not going to happen. But to your other point, yeah, look, uh, Allen Ginsberg at Columbia. Um, uh, and it's, you know, in working on this, I, I made connections about Philip Roth that I never, ever thought of before. And they do inform the film. So for example, uh, there was another Jewish kid who lived up the road in New Jersey from uh, Philip Roth, who was in Newark, who was three years older by the name of Allen Ginsberg. And Allen Ginsberg's aunt was Philip Roth's English teacher at Weehawk High School in Newark. And uh, that's, uh, there's no homage to him two ways in the film. One is the Kaddish scene at the beginning. My favorite Ginsberg poem is Kaddish. Mm. And it's about a mentally ill parent who passed away. Um, and I thought that was, it was very haunting to be able to tip that hat. And, and also the character of Flusser, the roommate who's in love with, with Logan, but who is stuck. He's not at Columbia. So there is no Kerouac and this and Ginsburg. He's in you know, rural Ohio. And he has no way of expressing or even maybe even admitting um, the fact that there might be this beat generation just around the corner in a kind of queer culture that's not available to him. But all his stuff, you know, everything on his wall is these are all queer folks. And, um, and then I put in, it wasn't in the book, his, uh, how, to, how to express that. How could he express his love without expressing it? So I put in all the Shakespeare Twelfth Night stuff, Malvolio uh, stuff. Well, Olivia just happened to be the name Olivia matched, and of course the letter, that was in the book, but the, 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 none of the Shakespeare was, so it's kind of fun. Yeah. Wonderful movie, thank you very much. But how did you pitch it? How did you raise money <laughs> to uh, produce a film like this, which on paper would, uh, you've got Philip Roth, I know, but, and your distinguished pedigree, but just tell us how you pitched it. Yeah, that's a really, uh, that's a good question. And yeah, it turns out that you can um, have, you know, a quarter of a century in the business and have run a movie studio and made money every year, and then you come knocking on the door with this script, and they're like, oh, you're so cute. Um, uh, uh, what the, I think the only thing, and I, I don't pitch, I, I hate pitching, I can't pitch anything, frankly, um, was that there was a very visceral response from a number of people to the script. They just, you know, I was lucky enough to know that there were people out there who knew me who were at least going to finish the script. They were going to read it. And when they got to the end and they were crying and then they called me up and I was like, cool, how much is this worth? You know, like, like we got, and, and we really had a great team. I have to say, Anthony Bregman, my producer on the film, uh, it also, it was weird. It was a funny thing. And I always say this about my ex-assistants, uh, um, which he was. I gave him his first job in the business. I didn't even give him a job because I didn't pay him. So, um, but, uh, uh, and now I think he's the most accomplished young producer in America. Um, and it was great. I always say this to them. I say, someday I'm going to be in your office pitching some movie. It's going to be embarrassing. And uh, just bear with me. And like, I know it, you don't have to do lunch, you know, but just don't be rude. Um, and there it was. I was working for Anthony. You know, it was fantastic. <laughs> I loved your film. Great story. I got most of it, but he was laughing too much, so I missed some <laughs> lines. Just one, one question. You start in the beginning with, um, with Olivia, and you end up with her. Is that from the book, or you had to find a way to end the film? Because it's a pretty uncomfortable ending, just him getting killed at the end. Right. So it's something you, you added in, or is that something from the novel? No, I did. I, I, I created that frame. And um, the reason for that was I knew that... Uh, when you, when you read the Philip Roth book, the book itself and the voice of the author provide a framing device that's separate from the story. And that, that sense of a residue 
something remaining that's over time, that crosses time. Maybe it doesn't connect. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I was, it's, a, it's a movie about these connections. It could be a misconnection. You know, she's not hearing his voice, and that wallpaper just happens to be there. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but somehow you connect over time. Uh, and in particular, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, a, a great genre, uh, both of American fiction and occasionally American cinema, which is the dead narrator, right? The, 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 the story is actually told by a dead person. And I realized that Roth, writing Indignation, this is, I think, his third to last of 32 novels. He's in his 70s. Um, it's at the end of his career. He's retired now. He's not writing anymore. And it's a very fable-like book. Uh, and he's going back to a moment in time, his own freshman year at Bucknell University in rural Pennsylvania, which he hated. Same kind of vibe. And in fact, I studied, we studied very carefully all the yearbooks from Bucknell, the freshman rules, everything, how they were dressed. And Logan got his hair permed. He looks just like you know, uh, <laughs> Philip. Um, and I realized he was going back in time to a moment when he did have a sexual encounter at Bucknell that got him in a little trouble. Um, and I think that it, in his 70s, he realized that this woman, this young woman, there was something that he missed. There was something about that woman that, was, that he needed to go back to and think about some more. And I, so I really believe that the book is a kind of reaching out over time to this, this young woman. Um, and that, that residue and that resilience, uh, the survival of that image of her over time became a kind of emblem for me for the picture uh, that really was to her and about her. Thank you for that. Um, is your first, you, uh, James Seamus, experienced producer and screenwriter and uh, everything, now, now director. Have you got the bug? Are we going to see some more from you as director? Uh, well, you know, if, if anybody has you know, a job, <laughs> I mean, it's like one of those mid-career, mid-late career things. I'm, I'm right. It's really, I mean, I mean, it is true. It's a great gig. Directing is just the best. Oh, yeah, come on, let's be clear. It's, it's, it was fantastic. I mean, it was a joy to make every day. And it's been fun to share it. Thank you so much for coming. James Shavis, thank, thank you. you. Really appreciate it.